Amen. Thanks. Thank you. Um, hello, everybody. Hello, the Salt Company. Um, welcome to the Salt Company. Um, I don't know why I always like want to do that dumb announcement where I have the article done and it feels awkward. It's a bad way to start. Okay, hi, my name's Sam. Um, if we haven't met yet, um, pleasure to meet you right now. Um, I was here a couple weeks ago, um, and like I said then, I'm, I'm on staff at Doxa Church. I oversee local missions um, for Doxa, but um, occasionally I get to pop back into the salt company world, um, and it's always super fun. So um, I'm stoked to get to open up um, the Bible with you tonight. So um, like Rudy said, um, we are in this series, What is God Like?, where we are trying to answer this question, what is God like? Novel, right? So that's, that's what we're trying to answer. And there's a few ways that, that we could do that, right? Um, we could kind of like, just like guess, guesstimate, like I think that maybe this is what God is like. Or we could kind of think like, this is what I would like God to be like, and then work backwards from there. Um, but, but we're not doing that, right? We're looking at Exodus 34, at God's own word, where, where God himself explicitly says to Moses and for us, this is what I am like. And tonight we're going to be specifically looking at this, this phrase that God uses, this concept that he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. And as I've been thinking about this phrase, slow to anger, and as I've, I've been thinking about this idea of, of becoming angry, um, I, I don't know how to like word this without sounding weird, but I, I, it makes me think of my wife, Morgan. And let me explain that. Um, my wife, Morgan... Uh, is an English teacher, right? Um, and, and she teaches uh, high school English. She teaches mostly juniors and seniors. And like, I know that I'm biased because I'm like married to her or whatever, but seriously, she is like such a cool teacher. She's super funny, super smart, but she makes English super fun. The, the common like compliment that she constantly gets from kids is, I hate English class but your class is my favorite. And Morgan is always like, that means that you like English class, right? So, so she's a super cool teacher, um, but occasionally kids will just push her to her limits. And I know that this is weird, but I delight, I relish to hear the stories of the times that Morgan has to bring down the hammer, right? And, and discipline and correct some kid in her class, okay? So, so there's a bunch of <laughs> examples that I could, could share. Um, and, and let me qualify, Morgan did give me permission to share this story, but one that comes to mind that I think is just like such a funny epic story um, is when, when we were in college, um, Morgan was in her senior year, she was student teaching um, at a small school um, in small town Iowa. And man, she had just had like a rough day that day, right? Um, she had to break up like several fights, uh, just like super stressful, but it's like, whatever, we're, we're at like class now, new class period, Morgan's fine. Again, cool teacher, funny teacher. She tells everybody, put, put your laptops away, we're gonna read now. And there's this one kid that's like, not like a bad kid, right? But he's just like a little bit too comfortable. He doesn't put his laptop away, right? Uh, and Morgan's like, whatever, maybe he just like didn't hear me. And she says again, like, okay, put your laptops away. Um, we're, we're gonna read now. Again, she's had a bad day, but she's trying to be nice. This kid says, I know, just a second, let me finish my game. And Morgan walks over to find he is playing Fortnite <laughs> during class on his laptop. And Morgan, one last time, says, it's time for class. She goes, puts her, her, her hand on his laptop, goes to shut the lid, and he does this. Yeah, that's how I reacted. Not good. He, put, he puts his hand in, and he's like, wait, no, my game. And Morgan 
just breaks. She doesn't even yell. It's more scary than that. She, she gets down on a knee. I hope this isn't weird, but this is what she does. She gets down to eye level. She gets super close to the kid and whispers, get out. And this kid is like, I, 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 and then she goes, get out. And he's like, I didn't mean, and she's like, get out of my classroom right now, you know. And like the class is like, oh my gosh. And they did great the rest of the day, right? So that's like super funny to me. And again, like I can't emphasize enough, like Morgan is not an angry teacher. And that's not just me, like, like you know, again, biased because I'm married or whatever. But, but literally like the kids, that she will constantly get this refrain where on the rare occasion that she does snap, that she does have to like discipline a kid, inevitably, whoever the kid is that, that was like messing around being dumb, their friend will then turn to them and say, way to go, Mrs. Roberts is actually a cool teacher and you made her mad, right? That's like the refrain, she's not an angry teacher, but it's significant when it happens. Now, that's Morgan, that's like a funny story or whatever, but when we think about God's anger, I know that for a lot of us, like it can be more uncomfortable, like make us uneasy thinking about God's anger, right? Because, like, for one thing, like, with the story that I shared, it's like the kid lost his Fortnite game, you know, bummer. But with God's anger, it's, like, more severe. And, and I think on top of that, too, like, I just shared, like, a funny story about someone's anger. But I also just want to acknowledge that, that for a lot of us, we come into this room with, with baggage, with mixed feelings about anger. Because for us, we hear that word anger, and, and we might not think of funny stories. We might think of, like, a parent growing up that was angry or an ex that would get angry. And when they got angry, it was not good. And so what does it mean that God gets angry? So that's the idea that, that I wanna wrestle with tonight. And, and the big idea for tonight, what I wanna frame the evening with, okay, note takers, this is for you. God is slow to anger because he wants you to come home. God is slow to anger because he wants you to come home. So if, if you have a Bible, you can start flipping to Luke chapter 15. That'll be the, the text that we mostly camp out in. And that text, that story is going to help us answer this question of, of why is God slow to anger? What does it matter that he's slow to anger? And you can start flipping there, but once you get there, put a, a finger there or a bookmark, maybe like your handout that you got a couple weeks ago, because um, we're going to come back to it, Luke 15. That'll be kind of our finish line. But before we get there, before we even ask the question, um, why is God slow to anger? There's like a few more questions before that that we want to ask, right? Like when God says to Moses, I am slow to anger, Moses and, and the original um, audience hearing that would have assumed a bunch of stuff that you and I might not assume. And so you and I probably are asking, before we ask why is God slow to anger, we're asking what does it even mean that God is slow to anger? And before we even ask that, we're wondering, what, what does it mean that God gets angry, period? And on top of all of that, what on earth does it mean that God has feelings? Okay, slow to anger. We need to do a little bit of, of homework on God's slowness to anger first. So I want to start with that question that I just said, actually. What does it mean that God feels? Like, really think about that. Like, what on earth does it mean that God has feelings? Because 
if we rush past this, like, I think that maybe we can get this in the abstract, like in the vague, like, hallmark kind of way, you know, like, yeah, I know that, like, God loves me, and, and I remember, you know, stories where Jesus, you know, got emotional or whatever, but I don't want us to miss how, like, peculiar and significant this is, that God is described as a person that feelings can happen to. And I think that if we examine ourselves and, and we get down to it, probably we don't like really believe that on a gut level, but rather we think that God is something more like, like a vague, powerful force in the universe. You know, like he's powerful and, and, and we can even put a name on that force, but it's still a vague force nonetheless. Or we might think of God as like this machine that kind of exists out there and uh, maybe he's the machine that keeps the universe running, but he just kind of chugs along in the background. And yes, God is powerful, and yes, God does work, but the claim that the Bible makes is that God is a person who feels. He's affected by emotion. So here's how the, the rabbi and theologian Abraham Heschel put it. He's smarter than me, so I want to just quote him. He says, in the Bible, God does not reveal himself in abstract absoluteness, but in a personal and intimate relation to the world. He is moved and affected by what happens in the world and reacts accordingly. The prophets had no mere theory or idea of God. What they had was an understanding, not the result of theoretical inquiry about God. Rather, to them, God was overwhelmingly real and shatteringly present. Okay, so a lot of us in the room, I shouldn't say us, I, I'm not in college, but many of you in the room, right, you're getting degrees at UW-Madison, MATC, whatever, and you're, and you're getting a degree in engineering or biology or whatever, and you're having to learn these, these working theories or memorize these equations, right, and that's awesome, that's great for like class, like E equals um, powerhouse of the cell or whatever, right, those are awesome for that, but the Bible is making this claim like you can't learn God like an equation, he is a person to get to know. So what is, what is God like? God has feelings. God feels. And when you get that God feels, that will change the way that you pray to him. So if that's what it means that God feels, what does it mean that God gets angry? Right? What does it mean that God gets angry? God's anger, if I could sum it up in, in like kind of a neat shorter sentence, I'd say God's anger is an appropriate and unpleasant response to evil and injustice. It's appropriate and unpleasant. It's unpleasant, but it's appropriate. And I think that we get this on a gut level, right? That, that anger in and of itself is not inherently bad or wrong. Because if you saw somebody being harassed on University Avenue, or, or if you saw somebody being actively discriminated against because of the color of their skin, you would get angry. And that would be good. That would be appropriate. And in fact, if you saw those things, if you saw evil and injustice and you felt nothing, your, your friends would rightfully maybe say to you, hey, that's not right. What's going on? Why don't you feel or react to that? But see, here's the problem. Like for us, because of our sin, our internal thermometers are just jacked up and broken and we're so often not good at drawing the line on what should warrant my anger or what my, my response in my anger should look like. And this is why so many of us, me included, are walking into this room and we have baggage from other people's anger. 
from the anger of a parent, an ex, a pastor, whoever. That for us growing up or in the past month, whenever it was, you felt like you were walking on eggshells because at any moment, if you said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, that person would explode in fury. And that is not what God is like. That's not the case with God. God's anger is measured and it's controlled and it's consistent. And as you read the Bible, you'll pick up on this pattern where there's constantly these three different types of things that will elicit God's anger. The mistreatment of other people, people keeping others from him, and in specific instances, when the people with whom he has a covenant relationship or a special unique relationship actively do something to harm that relationship. That's to say God's anger is not random. It's consistent, it's controlled, it's unpleasant, but it's appropriate. And so hear me say, say this, Salt. God would not be good if he did not get angry, right? His heart is too tied up in our well-being to not care about how we behave or how we treat each other. When he sees evil and injustice, he feels pain in his chest and he is moved to have to do something. That's God's anger. But so that's God's anger in the abstract. Get, getting into the Bible, there's a couple ways that we see the Bible kind of consistently um, describe God's anger. A couple of phrases or images that it uses describe God's anger. And both of them are, are images um, that pull from this idea of heat or, or hotness, right? So, so the first one, probably most of us have at least heard it, is God's wrath. And for some of us, we might think like wrath is like kind of a super anger. That's not necessarily how the, how the Bible uses it. It just means God's anger, but it's this idea of, of anger or literally heat. And the way that the Bible uses um, God's wrath, the way that it describes it, is as this handing people over to the logical outcome of their own self-destructive behavior, and in some cases, speeding that up. So if you've been coming to Doxa on Sundays, we've been going through the book of Daniel, right? And in that story, in that book, it's talking about Israelites that are in exile in Babylon. And the Bible paints this picture of like, Israel had become so unjust and so corrupt that over time, in God's wrath, he let that society kind of cave in on itself. But then also specifically, he sped that process up and saying, I am so unable to distinguish you from Babylon, your neighbor. I'm going to let Babylon take you over. That's God's wrath. But then the, the other way that, that we see God's anger described, right? If that's God handing someone over to their own self-destruction, the other common way that you'll see God's anger described is this phrase that literally means his nose burned hot, right? So ancient Hebrew that the Bible is written in was this pictorial, idiomatic language that used a ton of metaphors um, and images to try and get this idea across that maybe just like a simple word might not do justice. And I think that like, you know, we, we can get this too. It's just like how we use body parts to describe things that we're feeling, even if we're not literally physically talking about the body part, we'll say like, my heart is broken or my stomach is in knots, right? So in the same way, um, the people in, in the times of the Bible that were writing the Bible, if they were mad, they would say, my nose burns against you, right? It's literally, like, maybe not literally, but it's like this idea of like Tom and Jerry, where it's like, right? You see like the thermometer rise and the steam coming out of their ears, right? So that's this idea that your face gets flush, it's red. And there are times where, where God is so pushed to his limit 
it says that God's nose burned against them. Okay, so like, maybe that's cool. Maybe you're into linguistics, but, but you might be like, the wrath thing was kind of interesting. Why are we talking about noses? Okay, this is the point. With all that in mind, all that I, that I just said about anger, about noses and all that, I want you to hear me read Exodus 34 again, only I'm going to read what it literally says in the Hebrew. This is what it literally says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, long of nose. I can tell some of you are like, am I allowed to laugh at that? That's like kind of weird, right? Like you, you are, it's fine. We'll get back to reverend in a second. But that's odd. That's like weird to us, right? As modern English speakers are like, what? Long of nose, what does that mean? Okay, here's the image, right? So imagine like you, you're um, um, a, a like young Hebrew boy living in this time, right? You, you push your mom to her limit, right? And you see like, oh man, she's mad now. Her nose is burning. God's taking that image of a nose burning hot and he's saying, my nose is really long. This is the point. What does it mean that God is slow to anger? He's communicating to Moses, it takes me a really long time to get mad. God says it takes a long time to get mad. I think like the best like analogy that we have to this in, in our language is like having a short fuse, like the opposite of that. But again, even that wouldn't do it justice. Like we can't just say God has a long fuse because that even implies like once the fuse is up, he's going to explode. And again, God isn't like that. His, his anger is unpleasant, but it's appropriate. And by his grace, it takes him a long time to get there. So, so don't miss this. This is so big. This is the point that God is making to Moses. In Exodus 34, he doesn't say, I am the Lord and I am angry, right? And he also doesn't say, I am the Lord and I get angry sometimes. No, what God chooses to say, the words that he chooses to use, what he chooses to emphasize to Moses is, I am God, this is what I like, and he chooses to emphasize slow. I am slow to anger. So here's how the apostle Peter puts it. This verse is going to come up on the screen. This is way later in the Bible. The apostle Peter, right, he's one of Jesus' followers. He's writing to a church that is feeling like the evil and destruction of the world is just so bad. They're actually kind of wishing that God would hurry up and get angry because they feel like God is like letting up on his promise that he would come back and that he would rule and that Jesus would come back someday. And so they're asking, what is God taking so long? Why is he being so slow to keep his promise? And this is what Peter says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, as you read the Bible, time and time again, when God gets angry, right, the emphasis is this, of the story may not actually be that God gets angry, but that he's giving ample opportunities for people to turn back. That he's even saying, I don't want to get angry. I want you to turn from your ways because I want you to be saved. I want you to have life. And when you get that God is slow to anger, that changes the way that you read the Bible. You see that what's emphasized is not that God gets angry, but rather 
how long it takes him to get angry. God is slow to anger. All right, that's the homework on, on God's anger. Now we can ask, why is God slow to anger? Why does that matter? Why does he feel like he needs to communicate that to Moses? Why does it matter to us? Why is God slow to anger? Again, God is slow to anger because he wants us to come home. All right, Luke 15. This is the story that we're going to be in for the rest of our time. We're going to read a story that Jesus gives to this mixed crowd. Okay, so starting in verse 1, read this with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinner, sinners and eats with them. Okay, so pause. So like I said, this is a mixed crowd. It's basically a mixed crowd of tax collectors and sinners, or in other words, kind of, kind of these social outcasts, people who would have felt, I am too bad to, to be in God's presence. I am too bad of a sinner to come back to God. And they're mixed in with these Pharisees and teachers of the law, who ironically actually would have agreed with the other group, right? They are the people that were like, yeah, actually, I agree. You are too bad to come back to God. You are too bad to be here. And we know from other stories in the New Testament that these people, the Pharisees, were actually angry at Jesus because of the way that he talked, the way that he lived his life, where he was so loving and welcoming to people that they felt were like way too bad to deserve any grace, any love, way too bad to come back to God. And Jesus is aware of this, right? He looks at this mixed crowd. He hears the Pharisees complaining. And it's as if Jesus says, you want to know what God is like? Let me tell you a story. He tells a couple stories. And then the one that we're going to look at, starting in verse 11, goes like this. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. Okay, so Jesus is telling this story, right? There's this guy that has two sons, and one of the sons, in a super disrespectful move, says to his dad, I want my inheritance now. And it's just like it would be today. You don't usually get an inheritance unless your, your dad has passed away, right? So he's basically saying to his dad, I don't want you. I want your stuff. I wish that you were dead. You're as good as dead to me. Give me the money. I'm gone. And notice what the father does, right? He, he doesn't slap the son. He doesn't bring down the hammer on the, the son. But rather, he says, okay. It says he divided his property between them. He gives his son his share of the inheritance. This is what you were going to get when I died. I'm going to let you do this. And, and I think that we can assume from the story that the dad probably knows that this is not going to end well for the son, right? Like maybe just by like the character of his son or just we see in the story, right, that his son is going to squander all of it in reckless living. He knows that this isn't going to end well, but he hands him over, right, to his own self-destruction, says, this is what you want. I'm going to let you do it. And then he does exactly that. He squanders his property. He spends it all on drinking, partying, sleeping around, whatever he wants, whatever he thinks of, he throws money at it and does it until the money runs out. And now the money that was supposed to last him years, if not the rest of his life, he's totally spent. 
Okay, keep reading verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, this is the point of the story where I want to start pointing out what feelings, what emotions different characters are having. Which character is feeling what emotion, and when are they feeling that emotion? I think that, like, we can probably assume that though it doesn't explicitly say what the son was feeling when he left his dad, we can assume that it was maybe a mix of anger, pride, right, indifference, whatever. But whatever that was, he's not feeling it now. Jesus is very intentional in how he says that he longed to eat the pods that the pigs ate. Jesus wants us to feel how sad and desperate this guy feels. I have completely ruined my life. I've completely hit rock bottom. He's looking at these pigs, which to to Jesus' listeners, they would have seen as an unholy, gross, unclean animal. And this guy is seeing the pigs and thinking, if I was one of the pigs, that would be better. I have so thrown my life away. If I was one of the pigs, at least I could eat. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This guy realizes in this moment I had it made with my dad. Everything was great, and I completely blew it. Literally, like, my dad's employees eat better than I do. If I just worked for my dad even, that would be better than the situation that I'm in. But he's also thinking there is absolutely no way my dad takes me back as his son, right? Not just because, like, he so disrespected him, but again, he literally said to his dad, you are dead to me. You're as good as dead. I don't want anything to do with you. I want the money, and I'm gone. And now this guy is thinking, maybe, just maybe, my dad will take me back as an employee. Like, the odds aren't great, but that's the only shot I've got. Otherwise, I'm going to starve to death out here with the pigs. And you can feel the terror that this guy is feeling, right? No one has ever disrespected my dad like I did. And now he's had weeks, maybe months, to build up his rage. My only hope, my only shot, is if if I can just get this speech out quick enough before my dad brings down his rightful anger on me. And you can imagine him as he's walking back home from this far country, step after step, he's rehearsing this speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He walks another block. Father, I am, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He knows that his dad has feelings. He knows that his dad gets angry. And he believes that the moment he returns... That moment, in that moment, the feeling his dad will most acutely feel will be raging anger. But look at how Jesus ends the story. Verse 20. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. His father felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. What feeling does the father have in that moment? Overwhelming joy and compassion. And how does the father describe the day that his son left? He says, it was like I watched my baby boy die. And did he feel anger? Did he hand him over to his foolishness? Certainly. But what the father chooses to emphasize is I was crushed the day that you left, and now I cannot get over. It's like you've come back to life. I'm so happy you're home. He gives his son a robe to say, you belong under my shelter. He gives him a signet ring to say, you belong in my family. He gives him sandals to say, you're more than just a worker. And he gives his son a feast to say, you belong, you belong, you belong. Welcome home. And so, dude, this, like, makes me geek out so much because Jesus is such a master storyteller and the Bible is so incredibly written. Did you catch how his speech went? The speech that he was practicing the whole way home, right? That speech went like this, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It's basically one speech that has three parts. I screwed up. I don't deserve you. Let me work it off. And Jesus, the master storyteller, words this on purpose. It says, the son gets to his dad, starts to get the speech out. I screwed up. I don't deserve you. And he's cut off by a hug from his dad. I guarantee you, the son lived differently after that because moments of encountering grace like that changes a person. But make no mistake, the son did not and could not earn his way back to his dad. All he did was step and walk back home, and it was by his sheer grace and love and compassion for his son, he brought him back in. He could never earn sonship back. It was the father's love and grace for him that brought him back in as a son. So what is God like? God is like a dad sitting on a porch, waiting all night for his son, for his daughter to come home. So look at this verse one more time with me, Second Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is slow to anger because he wants you to come home. This is why he doesn't say, I am the Lord your God, I'm angry. I'm the Lord your God, I get angry. This is why he says to Moses, this is what you should know about me. I'm slow to anger. I want people to be made right with me. I want my sons and daughters to come 
home. And when you get this salt, when you understand this, God's slowness to anger, that will change you. When you see that God was not quick to throw you out, but made a way through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, so that if I just have faith, if I just come home, put my faith in what Jesus did, I can be made right with him. That changes you. So if you're a Christian, this will change the way you read the Bible. You'll begin to see that God is not a tyrant waiting for the ch any chance that he can get to be angry at you and strike you down, but rather that he's a father patiently waiting for his children to come home. And it, it'll change the way that you pray. You'll begin to see that God's heart for you, his feelings for you, is that he rejoices over you. He feels joy and, and, and grat gratitude for his relationship with you. And then lastly, if you're a Christian and you get this, this will change the way that you get angry, right? James 1 says that in light of what God did for us, we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then if you're not a Christian, if you're hearing this and you're like, this is a wild story, but I don't know if this is for me, hear me say this is for you. The call for you is to come home. See what he's emphasizing. I'm slow. I'm patient. I'm waiting. Just come home. So now before we go into worship, we're going to pray in a second. But before we pray, I want to give us some time to reflect and respond. So in your seat, go ahead and, and bow your head, close your eyes, and just take a second to reflect. What is God telling you tonight? Just think about that story of the lost son, God's father heart for you. Maybe he's reshaping the way that you see him. Maybe because of how you've been hurt by anger in the past, you're, you're, you're afraid to draw near to God and maybe tonight he's shifting your perspective of what his anger is like. Or maybe you need to take an audit of your own anger. Does your anger look like God's? Slow and loving? Or does it look like the world's? Fast, ruthless? And maybe for you, you just haven't come home yet. And tonight's the night that you pray to Jesus and put your faith in him. Take a second and just pray about whatever you've got and then I'll close this in a second.
And I know that for three years, I ran from you and, and didn't want to surrender my life to you, Jesus. And I confess that even after choosing to follow you, I constantly find myself chasing old sin patterns and scared to come back to you because I think that that moment is the moment I'll see your anger, God. And I just confess to you, God, that what's real about you is you're slow to anger. And the picture of Jesus that you chose to give us is a dad waiting up all night for us to come home. So God, I just pray that you would make us like you, that you would make us slow to anger, God, but but also just help us to not try and perform, not think like if I can just like get back to God and get it all together. Maybe if I can be slow to anger, he'll take me back. No, God, help us just like get and be washed over by your grace for us, that you're slow to anger because you want us to come home, Jesus. And then God, I pray that you'd help us take that straight into worship, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray.